1: Welcome to ParCast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal female criminals episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the ParCast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular ParCast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find the original episodes for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. The list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. Today we're discussing the clues that criminals left behind and the ways in which the police use these clues to hunt down their suspect. These clues could be biological, such as DNA or fingerprints, or physical, such as a piece of clothing fiber left at the scene. Sometimes these clues are overlooked by criminals, not realizing that the errant footprint might lead the police to their door. Other times, these bits of information are left intentionally meant to taunt investigators who are struggling for answers. We'll begin with a clip from ParCast Original Serial Killers. Dennis Rader, also known as BTK, killed 10 victims between 1974 and 1991. During this time, Rader often sent letters to police and media and even called the police department to report one of his crimes. Following his eventual capture, Rader was interviewed by forensic psychologist Catherine Ramsland. She cites Rader's narcissistic ego and his lust for fame and attention as the reasons why he was so communicative with police and the media.
2: Rader was thrilled that Wichita detectives weren't able to locate him, even after he'd been brazen enough to report his own crime. He felt infallible, cocky enough to take chances. He sent the poem he had written about Shirley Vian to the local paper, The Wichita Eagle, on January 31st. But he was disappointed when they didn't publish anything about BTK.
1: So, Rader sent a poem about Nancy's death to local television station K.A.K.E. 11 days later. Rader had slightly rewritten the folk song O Death to reference Nancy's murder and titled it, quote, O Death to Nancy, end quote. Along with the revised song lyrics, he sent a drawing of Nancy signed with his initials B.T.K.
2: He also sent a note to the TV station whining that the Wichita Eagle had ignored his poem about Shirley Vian this prompted the newspaper to locate Raider's Shirley poem and hand it over to the police as evidence.
1: Raider was frustrated that police didn't seem to realize they were dealing with a serial killer, so he decided to connect the dots for them. He laid out the similarities between his victims in his typo filled letter to KAKE. We've edited some of those typos for clarity. He wrote, quote, Golly gee, yes, the MO is different in each, but look, a pattern is developing. The victims are tied up. Most have been women. Phone cut. Bring some bondage material. Sadistic tendencies. No struggle outside the death spot. No witnesses except the Vianne's kids. They were very lucky. Phone call saved them. End quote.
2: Rader later admitted to author Catherine Ramsland that he got a thrill out of playing games with the police. The risk and the subsequent media attention he received was intoxicating.
1: But Rader soon became too preoccupied to write taunting letters to the media. His daughter, Carrie Rader, was born on June 13, 1978. His growing family now took up most of his time.
2: He spent what little free time he had looking for his next victim.
1: And a little less than a year later, in April 1979, he found her. That clip from Serial Killers shows one of the many communications Rader had with police and media. Following his last murder in 1991, the BTK case went cold until 2004, when Rader restarted his communication with police and the media. In the end, Rader's desire to be noticed led to his capture. He sent the media a floppy disk containing his writings, believing that it couldn't be traced back to him. Using the data, police were able to track down Dennis Rader, council president of Christ Lutheran Church. While BTK's communication with police ultimately proved to be his downfall, the subject of our next clip sent letters, but still managed to evade capture. Coming up, we examine the perplexing puzzles left by the Zodiac Killer. Now back to the show. So far, we've covered Dennis Rader, also known as the BTK Killer. Throughout his killing spree, he sent messages to the police and media. This compulsive need for recognition ultimately led to his downfall. And he's not the only killer that felt compelled to broadcast his crimes. Our next clip comes from Unexplained Mysteries, covering the still-unsolved murders committed by the Zodiac Killer. The Zodiac killer claims to have killed up to 37 victims, but only five murders and two attempted murders have been definitively connected to the Zodiac. Over the course of the investigation, detectives collected clues from the scenes of the crimes, including tire tracks and a description of the killer by the two survivors. But seven months after the first murder, two newspapers received a perplexing clue directly from the killer. On August 1,
2: 1969, the San Francisco Chronicle, the San Francisco Examiner, and the Vallejo Times Herald each received a copy of a letter that seemed to be written by the killer.
1: The writer of the letters claimed credit for the murders of Faraday and Jensen and the attack on Farron and Majot.
0: Furthermore, the letter offered a list of evidence about the attacks that the killer provided to prove he was telling the truth. In his own words the killer listed details that only he and the police who examined the crime scenes would know
1: the letters listed the kind of ammo used in the shootings described the gunshot wounds of the victims and accurately identified the clothes that the victims were wearing
2: this was not the raving of a madman who sought attention for crimes he did not commit these letters came from the killer or someone who knew exactly what the killer had done.
1: The letters also included a request.
0: Quote, I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. In this cipher is my identity. If you do not print this cipher by the afternoon of Fry 1st of Aug 69, I will go on a killing rampage Friday night I will cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again, until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend.
1: Each of the letters received by the separate newspapers contained a different third of a cipher. The ciphers were naturally a jumble of various symbols, including Morse code and the Greek alphabet that didn't seem to mean anything.
0: The Chronicle and the Vallejo Times-Herald published their ciphers the next day, with the latter also featuring a statement from Vallejo's police chief Jack Stiltz, in which he expressed doubt that the letter was written by the killer and asked for a follow-up letter.
1: Though the letters were an exciting and confounding development, police still had no solid leads on suspects. They would have wanted as many handwriting samples as possible to help track down whoever was sending the letters.
2: The Examiner published its third of the cipher on Sunday, August 3rd. This would have been the first time that all three parts of the cipher were publicly available.
1: The code was cracked by Monday, August 4th. Following that clip from Unexplained Mysteries, schoolteacher Donald Harden and his wife Betty cracked the code. The message read... I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest, because man is the most dangerous animal of all. The Zodiac Killer continued to taunt police with his letters and indecipherable codes until he sent his final message in 1974, five years after the murder of his last known victim. Ultimately, even after considering over 2,500 suspects, the Zodiac Killer has never been identified. So far, we've covered killers who contacted the police directly, but our next criminal was a law enforcement officer himself. The stakes of discovery were so high for Rick Ames, he certainly didn't want to leave any clues that could reveal his identity. In our final clip from Espionage, We explore the investigation into Ames, the chief of the CIA's Soviet counterintelligence branch turned KGB spy. Ames stole more classified information than almost any other double agent in history and delivered it straight to the KGB in exchange for money. The CIA became suspicious when Ames started spending that cash, somehow living a lavish lifestyle on a modest salary. Ames was careless, and the CIA
3: use this to their advantage despite their early suspicions about rick ames it wasn't until september 1992 that the investigation found the definitive proof they needed it was the cia half of the investigation skylight that made the break but they couldn't have made it without the help of the fbi because half the information that led to it was collecting dust at the FBI's headquarters. The CIA knew that Rick, beginning in October 1985, had started depositing large sums of cash into his checking accounts. The FBI knew that on dates perfectly corresponding with his cash deposits, he'd been meeting with Sergei Chuvakin, his first Soviet cutout. Rick had made a careless mistake by depositing the cash Chivakin passed him right after their meetings. He could have waited a few weeks, or better yet, deposited small sums over the course of a few weeks to decrease suspicion. But careless was Rick's modus operandi, and it had worked for him for the past seven years just fine. It would work for another few months, too. The Skylight and Play Actor teams left their man in place, untouched, as they drafted their final report. Then, in May 1993, the investigation was handed over in full to the FBI. It was time to move in for the kill. The FBI called the operation Night Mover. Wiretaps went into Rick Ames' phones, Concealed microphones were placed in his home. A tracking device was attached to his Jaguar, and he became the subject of around-the-clock surveillance. The Super Gs, the FBI's elite team of surveillance specialists, were put on the case. The goal of Nightmover was ultimately to arrest Rick before his suspicions were aroused and the KGB could spirit him away to the USSR. But first, the task force had to gather enough evidence to ensure Rick was convicted in a court of law. That meant more than suspicious financial records. They needed proof beyond a reasonable doubt that he was a double agent in contact with the KGB. By the end of September 1993, they were still missing the hard proof that Rick had attended a meeting with the KGB, or at least that he'd left information at a dead drop. Then, on October 8th, Rick and Maria Rosario left town for a wedding. This was the opportunity the Night Mover operation needed to get into the Ames' house, sweep through, grab information off Rick's computer, and copy any documents they could find. There were a few scraps of paper with interesting tidbits. The number of the Russian residential compounds in Vienna, for instance, was tucked into one of Rick's pockets left over from years before. But it was the computer that brought Rick's house of cards tumbling down. He'd recorded his dead drop in signal sites. He'd recorded his financial transactions with the KGB meticulously for once in his life. A printer ribbon revealed that a trip to Caracas in October 1992, which had already aroused the suspicions of the investigators, had been one of many trips to see his handler. There was also a letter that named his colleagues at the MBRF. The MBRF was the Russian Federal Ministry for Security, successor to the KGB's counterintelligence service. And the same letter assured his correspondent that Maria Rosario was very aware of his work. She had found out about Rick's work for the KGB in 1992, two years earlier. She'd kept silent. That made her an accomplice. The FBI could leverage leniency for her as a tactic to get Rick to talk.
1: In that clip from Espionage, Rick left a slew of clues for authorities including a detailed record of his meetings with his Soviet contacts, cash deposits, and post-it notes detailing the drop sites. In addition to all of the careless clues left by Rick, the FBI and CIA also kept Rick under near constant physical and video surveillance. They followed him to a drop site and caught him red-handed. Rick was arrested on February 21, 1994, and sentenced to life in prison. In the clips today, we saw that criminals can leave behind a variety of different clues, both intentionally and unintentionally. These pieces of information may ultimately be their downfall. In Serial Killers, BTK's ego-driven letters eventually led to his capture. In Espionage, Rick Ames's incautious record-keeping revealed a spy to the CIA. And in Unexplained Mysteries, the Zodiac Killer's ciphers led police to connect what they thought were unconnected murders, making them realize they had a serial killer on their hands. As police honed their methods of psychological profiling, and scientific advances allow investigators to pull DNA from the smallest samples. The clues left behind only become more influential, and sometimes their ego, their hubris, is the biggest clue of all. Thanks for tuning in to ParCast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on The Clues Left by Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode on Killers' First Murders. What drives a person to kill for the first time, and how does their modus operandi change after that initial slaying? If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast Original Shows, Unexplained Mysteries, Serial Killers, or Espionage on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Parcast traditionals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time.